help us to see the beauty of your mercy and your steadfast love and bring our sin to you. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Luke. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to somebody, and they asked me how I thought I did the first time I preached. I said I would judge that on based whether I was asked to preach again. So, yay. Uh, But if you have your Bibles with you, I would ask you to turn to Psalm 51. If I were to ask you who your favorite character in the Old Testament is, who would you say and why? Is it Abraham because of his faith? Moses, his leadership? Daniel, his resolve? Is it David because of his heart? There's so many people we can choose from. There's Isaac, Joseph, Jacob, Isaiah, Ezekiel. So many, char- uh, so many people, so many characters that we can choose from. There's so many people who have done so many amazing things that are worthy of our attention and our study. And that's part of the reason why they were written down for us to read and to enjoy. Romans 15:4, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And while these people have done amazing things, all these people have done things that have brought immense sorrow to our God. And not to say that one sin is worse than another, but among all the falls in the Old Testament, there is none quite as attention-grabbing as David's. David did absolutely amazing things. As a boy, he was anointed to be king and received the Holy Spirit in 1 Samuel 16. A chapter later, he fought and killed Goliath. He killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. He survived a manhunt after him. He spared the life of the man who was trying to kill him. And all that was before he even became king. Once he became king, he conquered enemy after enemy, never knowing what defeat felt like. And he constantly gave credit and honor to the Lord. After all, he was a man after God's own heart. He was Israel's hero. Think of the boys who pretended that they were King David fighting and killing the giant Goliath. Think of the men who coveted the success and the riches that David possessed. There was no one more feared or revered in the known world at that time than David, king of Israel. He did what no king could do. He united all 12 tribes of Israel and ruled over them. He brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He ushered the age in which the temple was built. David was the poster child of what it meant to be successful. And I'm sure the people at that time thought that David would have been their Messiah, the one that would establish a kingdom that would never be broken. But David was just a man. And one day that man, that king, that commander of an army was at home when he should have been at war fighting. The Bible tells us he got up one spring day out of bed and went to his rooftop balcony. He was overlooking the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that God had promised them, in a position that God had put him in. 
but he wasn't thinking about God at this moment. God was nowhere to be seen in his thought process. As he was looking, he looked into some of the houses, and he saw what the Bible tells us was a beautiful woman bathing. And instead of turning around, going inside, he stayed and he gazed. He let his heart become fixated, and it got to the point where he sent his servants to go bring her to him, where he slept with her. And she became pregnant. And the Lord giving him an opportunity to turn from his sins and repent, David decided to dive a little deeper by bringing Uriah back home from war and trying to get him to sleep with his wife so he can pass off his baby as Uriah's. But Uriah was more noble than David was. He had more integrity than David had. He refused to sleep with his wife while his fellow soldiers were at war fighting. David was given another opportunity to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to turn from his sin, but he dove a little deeper. He got Uriah drunk and tried to get him to sleep with his wife again. But a drunk Uriah had more integrity than a sober David. He still refused to sleep with his wife. And so David dove to the depths of his depravity. He sent Uriah back to the front lines of war with a letter. And if Uriah had any, any disintegrity in him, any fault in him, that letter never would have made it to the general. That letter was his death sentence. It told Joab, his general, to put Uriah in the front lines and just as they were about to engage in battle, to retreat and let Uriah die. Yes, David was a man who did amazing things, but he was still just a man, and he fell like men do. And we should be thankful that his fall is recorded for us. It shows us how the most valiant men struggle and fall just like the lowest man. How the greatest king of human history can fall just like the most base king in human history. David's sins were many, and they were egregious. He committed adultery, murder, he lied about everything, tried to cover it up. He made accomplices out of his generals, out of his servants. We hear and we use the phrase, sin makes you stupid, and that is no less true with David. Sin made him brainless, and it makes us brainless. And it wasn't until the Lord sent Nathaniel to confront him with a story where David finally saw his own sin. After Nathan told him a story, Daniel just responded, David just responded, I have sinned. And David, in that state of utter brokenness, penned one of the greatest prayers of repentance ever written. That prayer is Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is really an elaboration of that confession, I have sinned. A commentator says that Psalm 51 is the way people think and feel if they are born again. It's a prayer that every believer needs to read and study constantly as we are in constant need of repentance. And I hope that this would be our prayer, that in our sin we would be broken and driven to make a confession like this one, that even though it was written thousands of years ago, it still describes the human condition perfectly today. So read with me Psalm 51. To the choir master, 
a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, heart, uh, broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Generally, Father, Lord, we come before you and ask your blessing on our time today. Lord, I pray this would be a time not to beat up on David for his sins, but to examine our own heart. Lord, David opened up his heart. He put his heart on an operating table in this psalm for us to dissect. Lord, I pray that we would do a faithful job of seeing ourselves in David, seeing where we fell, where we fall short of the mark. Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase. I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people. Or be with us today. In your name I pray. Amen. There's four aspects of repentance here in Psalm 51. And I think there's four aspects that need to be present in the life of every believer. And those four aspects are a recognition of who God is. A recognition of who man is. A recognition of what God will do. And a recognition of what man will do. Verses 1 and 2 is a recognition of who God is. David doesn't really waste time writing an introduction. He kind of just goes straight to it. He tells God exactly what he needs, mercy. David, in his sin, realizes that he has no defense. There's no excuse that he can come up with. It's funny, only being a teacher for a couple months, the excuses that kids have for doing something they're not supposed to be doing. Oh, I didn't know I needed my math notebook for math class. I didn't know I needed a pencil. Why can't I take a test in red pen? That's not what David's doing. He's not claiming innocence. He's not claiming ignorance. He's not relying on his good works to outweigh his bad. 
He sees himself as defenseless, a dirty sinner standing before a holy God. He needs to appeal to something that will grant him forgiveness, so he appeals to the mercy and the love of God. Again, he's not relying on his works, his merit, or his accomplishments. He has many things to boast about. But that's not what he's relying on in this moment. Like Isaiah tells us, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments before the Lord. We can't go to God with what we have done because it means nothing. We aren't even worthy to approach God. We have no way of dealing with sin on our own. No work can make us right before God. David knows that, and that's why he's asking for mercy. He's asking to receive something he knows he doesn't deserve. You see, at the end of verse 1, he asks God to blot out his transgressions, to wash him thoroughly from iniquity, and to cleanse him from sin. In three consecutive lines, David uses three different words for sin. Transgressions, he's asking the Lord to blot out his transgressions. Transgression meaning rebellious acts. Take away what I have done that I shouldn't have done. He asked God to wash him thoroughly from iniquity, iniquity being the Hebrew word for guilt. He's asking the Lord to take away the guilt of what he has done. The end of verse 2, he's asking God to cleanse him from his sin. Sin just translating to sinful thing. Cleanse him from the things that are sinful. And I want us to notice that verses 1 and 2 are all things God does according to who God is. It's according to God's steadfast love, according to God's abundant mercy. God is the one that must blot out the transgressions. He's asking God to wash him thoroughly, asking God to cleanse him. I want to ask us, do we feel like we need to clean ourselves up before we go to God? Do we realize that there is nothing we can do to prepare or nothing that we can bring that will improve our standing before God? C.S. Lewis puts it, God doesn't want something from us. He simply wants us. Just like Jesus says in the New Testament, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. We don't go to the doctor once we start to feel better. We go in the depths of our sickness hoping to find a remedy to our disease. So I would ask us to run to God the second we feel the, the weight and the knowledge of sin. Knowing that when we do, God will deal, deal with us according to his mercy, deal with us gently. I think we often have an image of God that when we sin, we are met with a God crossing his arms, waving his finger at us, saying, what took you so long? But that's not the reality. Dane Orland puts it, Christ's heart is not drained by us coming to him. His heart is filled all the more by our coming to him. Jesus wants us to come to him. He's waiting for us to come. But in order to come to God, we need to recognize who we are and why we need God. And that's point number two, a recognition of who man is, verses three through six. And I want to see verses in three to four are the reason why he's appealing to God in verses 1 and 2. The word for at the beginning of verse 3 is connecting those two passages. Why is he asking God to have mercy? Well, because he knows his transgression. 
because his sin is ever before him. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is fully and constantly aware of what he has done. He's no longer oblivious to his sin. The effects of his sin are running, running rampant in his soul and in his life. His sin is occupying his mind. It's always there. The tape get, keeps getting replayed over and over again. He cannot get it out. He's very focused on his sin. He's aware of what sin is. And I want to ask us, what is sin? What constitutes something as sin? Is sin something we do or something we don't do? Why is sin so offensive to God? I think John Piper gives such a well-rounded definition of sin. He says, what is sin? It's the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. And I think if we were to go through everything that David did, we would see in each and every line where he failed to accomplish this. We would see where he failed to esteem the wisdom of God, trust the faithfulness of God, obey the commandments of God. But like I said, this isn't a time to beat up on David for what he did. It's a time to examine ourselves. And if, I think if we were to look at our own sin we would say the same thing about us. And so David, like us, has to go somewhere to have his sin dealt with. And he's doing the only thing he can do. He appeals to the one he sinned against for forgiveness. But first, I just want to ask, when do we see ourselves falling into sin? What leads us to the choice where we sin? Because it doesn't happen suddenly. Chuck Swindoll puts it, no man suddenly becomes base, just as no marriage suddenly fractures, just as no tree suddenly rots. We make choices, one after another, that either lead us closer and closer to sin or further and further away from sin. We can see very clearly what choices David made that led him to sin. He should have been at war not at home. He should have walked inside when he saw Bathsheba, not stay out there. He shouldn't have requested her to come to him. He shouldn't have called Uriah home. He shouldn't have gotten Uriah drunk. He shouldn't have killed Uriah. Choice after choice, making him go deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. But what about us? What desires take root in your soul that overpower the desire for Christ? Where specifically do you find yourself defenseless against sin's power? Do we see how we are primarily sinning against God when we sin? David does. Beginning of verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Yes, he did wrong against Uriah and Bathsheba. I'm sure Uriah wasn't a fan of what was happening. But God is the ultimate victim of his sin. 
the most hurt by his evil. The word evil there in verse 4 is the Hebrew word for bad. The same way we would say this movie is bad, this food is bad, or math is bad. He did what was bad in God's sight. Not human sight. The human perspective of what is good and bad is irrelevant. We need a godly perspective of what is good and what is bad. David then goes on at the end of verse 4 to then tell God he knows and he is fully aware that he is deserving of whatever punishment God deems right. Not that God needs our justification or needs us to declare him blameless, but David is just humbly submitting to the justice of Lord and to the righteousness of his God. Are we that understanding? If we were sent to hell, do we truly believe that God would be doing the just thing in sending us there? Is our sin that heavy to us? Are we aware of how disgusting and offensive sin is to God? If we are, we would be saying the same thing that David's saying here. That his judgment of sin is just no matter what he deems the judgment should be. David then goes on in verses 5 to 6 to give more evidence of why he's deserving of that punishment. Verses 5 through 6, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here he's simply saying he's not sinful because he sinned. He sinned because he's sinful. That nature was already inside of him that made him sin. He didn't become sinful the moment he sinned. He was sinful way before he ever committed his first sin. The word for brought forth in the beginning of verse 5 is a word that means to twist or to writhe in pain. And the word conceive is a word that is connected to animals mating. We usually paint birth as this beautiful thing that brings forth a beautiful life. And while that is true, David is giving such a more earthy tone to birth and instead showing how it brings forth a child who is sinful, whose nature is in direct opposition to God. But that, that wasn't God's design. God's design wasn't to have humans brought forth in sin. Genesis is very clear that God, what God created was good, and when he created man, it was what? Very good. We hear all the time that we are made in the image of God. We were created in the image of God. We didn't evolve into the image of God. There isn't an image of God gene in our DNA. So what is so special about man and what is the significance of being made in the image of God and how does that relate to sin? Well, we know what the image of God can't mean. We know it's not a physical likeness. We don't look like God. God doesn't have a physical form. And even if he did, we share a likeness with animals. So if we share a likeness with God and animals share a likeness with us, that means animals share a likeness with God, and that is nowhere found in Scripture. So what is it? What is, does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it's, it's our ability to know what is right and wrong. It's our, our consciousness, our ability to know moral law. 
No animal knows what is right and what is wrong. They just act. It's instinct. It is what is put in them. Humans are the only creature that can decide to do what is right or what is wrong. And so being in the, made in the image of God is what separates us from every other creature on earth. And when God made us, he made us capable of knowing truth. The word truth in verse 6 can be translated as faithfulness or firmness. He made us capable of being faithful and firm, but our sin makes it impossible for us to remain firm on our own. A writer puts it, God could prepare the human spirit with the capacity for truth and wisdom, which makes sin so painful to God. David was a very wise man. He made very many wise decisions. He was led by the spirit himself to make decisions. I think that's what makes his fall so impactful. We see how, rise, how fast, how high he rose and made his fall that much steeper. And we do the same thing, right? We, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And when you choose to sin, you are choosing to disregard truth and disregard wisdom and immerse yourself in falsehood and foolishness. Yes, it is our inclination, but brothers and sisters, I ask that it wouldn't be our excuse. That we wouldn't say, well, I'm a sinner. That's who I am. I'm going to sin. No, we, we know the reality of what we ought to pick, and we decide full well against it. We use the phrase cosmic treason to describe our sin. That sin is the declaration that we wish God were dead, and we were God instead. But God, in his kindness, didn't want us to die in that way of thinking. He made a way for us to be firm, to be faithful. But that ability doesn't lie within ourselves or our own strength. In order for us to be at all faithful, to remain at all firm, we must recognize the third point, a recognition of what God will do. Verses 7 through 12. I want us to see, just like verses 1 to 2, verses 7 through 12 are all things God does. He's the one that purges. He's the one that washes. David's asking God to let him hear. Let the bones rejoice. He wants God to hide his face. He wants God to blot out his iniquities. Verse 10, he wants God to create a clean heart, to renew a spirit. He's asking God to cast him not from his presence, to take not his Holy Spirit. He's asking God to restore the joy, and he's asking God to uphold him. Beginning of verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that was used in the Old Testament for ceremonial cleansing. We see in Leviticus 14, it was used to declare lepers that once were unclean as clean. This act doesn't literally make someone clean. It is just a sign for everybody to see this person who was dirty is now clean. They are able to be accepted back into the community. So he's asking the Lord for a figurative purging. He can't purify himself. He knows that there's nothing he can do to take the sin away from his own heart. So he's asking God to do it for him so that he shall be clean 
that God would wash him so he could be whiter than snow. And once he is clean, he asked the Lord to let him hear joy and gladness because there is no joy when he's in sin. Without God's intervention, his worship is illegitimate. And being in a state where he can't worship how he ought, that is what has taken away all of his joy. I want to ask us, when we sin, do we feel as though there is no joy, no happiness? When we are fully aware of our sin and fully aware that we are in rebellion against God, does it have an effect on your happiness, on your joy? It it did for David. He, He was a wreck. And so he's asking the Lord to put away his sin, to put away his guilt, so he can enjoy the joy that he has in his Savior, in his God. He felt shame. He felt guilty. The world tells us today that shame is bad. That the way to true happiness is to eliminate shame altogether. That is antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Shame is a God-given gift to let us know when we have strayed from his law. Part of what it is to be Christian is to be broken, is to be ashamed of your sin. John Piper puts it, what makes a person a Christian is not that he doesn't get discouraged. It's not that he doesn't sin and feel miserable about it. What makes a person a Christian is the connection that he has with Jesus Christ that shapes how he thinks and feels about his discouragement and his guilt and his sin. Another author puts it, the heart and soul of a true believer who comes to worship is, first of all, to come to grips with the reality of his or her own sinfulness. We come to confess things that are negative. We come to confess our weakness, our inabilities, our deceptiveness, our tendency to be dishonest, disloyal, unloving, unkind, the fallenness of our flesh, the constant recycling of our tendencies toward iniquity and sins in the same kind of categories. David was discouraged. He felt the guilt of what he did. He felt the shame of what he did. But he realized that there's something to be done. He's not wallowing in that place of shame, in that place of guilt. He's taking it somewhere. He's taking it to the Lord, confessing it and asking for it to be taken away. He needs the Lord to do something so his bones can rejoice once again. If we don't feel broken over our sins... If our sins have no effect on us, if they don't change the way we feel about God, the way we know our standing with God is, that should be scary to us. That should be alarming. We ought to ask the Lord to be made sensitive to sin. That's not an easy thing to ask, to ask the Lord to convict you and to make you feel awful about yourself. But that's the reality. We should feel the way that God feels about sin. He hates sin. He is grieved by sin. 2 Corinthians 7 gives a really good definition of what godly grief is and what worldly grief is. 2 Corinthians 7 says, For a godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief 
produces sin. Do you hate your sin? Do you have a godly grief when we sin? Are we grieved when we do something that grieves God? We're often the ones that try to turn our face from our own sin, pretend it's not there, lessen the effects. It's, it's not that bad. It's, it's not like I murdered. It's not like I committed adultery. David here in verse 9 is asking the Lord to turn his face from his sins, from David's sins. And David here is using an anthropomorphism. Right? The Lord doesn't actually have a face to turn away from sin. He's merely asking the Lord with his sin fully in front of him to have the Lord ignore it, forgive it, act as though it wasn't there, allow it to go unmentioned going forward. Don't bring it up when he sins again. He's asking the Lord to make his slate clean. David was grieved, and he knew he needed to repent. But more than repentance, he knew he needed restoration. And he knew that was only something that God could do. In verses 10 to 12, he asked God for a new heart. He knows that the sinful heart he was born with is incapable of pleasing the Lord. It should remind us of a promise that was made through Ezekiel 500 years earlier. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. That is what David is praying here. He's asking for a heart that would beat the way God's heart beats. What pains God's heart would pain his heart. The end of verse 10, he's asking for a right spirit. The word right can be uh, translated as steadfast, established a heart that would not be moved, that wouldn't be easily swayed by the temptations of sin. He then goes on in verse 11 to ask the Lord not to cast him away from his presence. If I were to ask you, what is the most famous psalm in the Bible, what would it be? Most of you could probably quote a lot of it from memory. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of evil, or temptation, I don't know, shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. For you are with me. He may have had assurance in times of temptation and trial, of hardships and trial, but not so much in rebellion. He wasn't confident that the Lord would remain with him. He's asking the Lord to stay with him. Sin shattered the assurance that the Lord would remain with him. He asked the Lord to take not his Holy Spirit from him. Now, the Holy Spirit operated differently in the Old Testament than it does today. The Holy Spirit was given to certain people in the Old Testament to accomplish things on behalf of the Lord. Ezekiel received it in chapter 2 of Ezekiel. Saul received it in 1 Samuel. David received it. Samson received it. Not everybody received it, but it was pretty special if you did. 
but people also had the spirit taken away when they did something that offended the Lord. Samson had the Holy Spirit taken away from him. Saul had the Holy Spirit taken away. David didn't want that to happen to him. He wanted to stay useful to the Lord. Now, believers, we aren't in danger of losing the Holy Spirit, but we are in danger of using our usefulness to the Lord until we are made right. David was aware that his salvation was secure and that it couldn't be taken away, that he makes that clear to us in Psalm 62. He knows his salvation isn't going anywhere. But verse 12, his joy wasn't. He's not asking the Lord to restore his salvation. He's asking the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation. I I hope we are aware that there's nothing you can do, believer, if you are truly saved, there's nothing you can do to forfeit your salvation. There's nothing we can do to loosen the grip that the Lord has on us. John 10 makes that very clear. But the joy connected to that salvation is not so secure. I believe that David would tell us if you're here today that if we aren't fully consumed of the joy of the salvation we have, then we will try to find that joy elsewhere. We need to be fully enveloped, immersed with the joy that being secure in our salvation in order for sin not to be worth it. As soon as the joy of our salvation starts to fade, as soon as it it becomes normal for us, That is when we're going to start to try to find that joy elsewhere. We ought to ask the Lord when we sin that our joy would be restored. So that when temptation comes sneaking up behind us, we can say no because the joy we have in front of us makes sin not worth it. He's asking the Lord to uphold him with a willing spirit. To give him a spirit that is discerning. That knows when sin is trying to take hold. And he can say no because he knows what is right. And once God does this, once God is able to purge him, once he's able to create a new heart to cast away, not David from his presence, to take not his Holy Spirit then David recognized what he should do. And that's verses 13 through 19. Man has a response to being forgiven. We can't faithfully fulfill that response apart from the Lord. But here we see that David's response is to go tell others of the forgiveness that he received. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David wants others to find the exact same forgiveness he received because he knows he is not deserving of it. He wants God's people to return to him, to repent and to serve God. In verse 14, we have the last mention of David's personal sin. Again, he's asking the Lord to deliver him from the blood guiltness, guiltiness, oh God. He wants the guilt of what he did to Uriah to be gone. And once it is, his tongue can sing aloud of our righteousness, of his righteousness, not our righteousness. 
And we see at the end of verse 14 and verse 15, it's all things that connect to speech. He wants his tongue to sing aloud of his righteousness. He wants the Lord to open his lips so that his mouth can declare his praise. His heart is full of praises for God, but he knows that he is not in a place where he can share them. He needs to be made right with God, just like what Jesus tells us, at the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I just want to make a note that God's righteousness in this instance could have resulted in David's death. David could have been put to death for what he did to Uriah, but God, being a forgiving and merciful God, spared David. And David, as a result, wants to declare his praise, knowing that he should have died, but thanking God that he didn't. He's asking the Lord to open his lips, the lips that sin had shut. David sees the necessity of being made right before he can worship. Worship can be done incorrectly. Take communion, for example. The Bible gives very clear warnings of doing communion, partaking in communion incorrectly. God doesn't want incorrect worship. He doesn't want worship from an unrepentant sinner. He he doesn't want a forgiveness offering from someone who isn't broken over their sin. Verse 17, it tells us the sacrifices that God wants is a broken spirit. It's with a broken spirit that David is asking God all these things. David is broken. He is a broken man. And it is with that broken spirit that David asks God to do good to Zion in verse 18. It says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. David didn't want the nation to suffer as a result of his sin. He asked the Lord to be kind to his people despite what David has done. He asked the walls to be built Regardless of whether you take this figuratively or literally, he's asking the Lord to protect his people, to build walls around them so enemies trying to attack them won't be successful. David is optimistic in verse 19 that there will be a time where the people will offer offerings in a righteous way, in a right way. He anticipates the acceptance of Israel's sacrifices. Again, he longs for a time where his people, David, the people that David is ruling, will offer, with us, offer sacrifices with a broken spirit, humbling themselves before the Lord. David went a while until his heart was broken. It, didn't, it wasn't even broken on his own. Like before, we said Nathaniel was the one that had to confront him in order for him to be broken by his sin. He was stuck in his pride. He remained unrepentant. But he was broken. He asked for repentance, and now he is able to worship God correctly again. God loves nothing more than to receive a sinner broken by their sin 
a man who realizes they are condemned without someone to intervene with them. An author puts it, we can't bring gifts to God without first surrendering to God. Are we surrendering to God? Are we aware of our sin? I'm sure that other people's sin causes a righteous anger in us. We hate seeing other people sin, but does that same righteous anger occur when we sin? Why doesn't God stay angry at sin? Well, his wrath has been satisfied. David wasn't completely sure of how this could be, but with us being on this side of the cross, we know exactly how God's wrath was satisfied. Right? It was through his son, whom he sent, who came willingly to live a human life, a life that was very mundane, most of which isn't even recorded for us in Scripture. He went from the throne room of heaven to a manger in a stable. Living a perfect life. He wasn't born with our sin nature. He was given a perfect record at birth, and he kept it. He didn't do one thing, didn't perform one action, didn't say one word, didn't think one thought that didn't please and honor the Lord. He lived a life that deserved heaven, but he was punished and committed and punished as if he deserved hell. He was punished as if he committed David's sins, as if he committed your sins, as if he committed my sins. That perfect record that he earned was stripped from him and given to us. And our disgusting, dirty record was taken from us and put onto Christ. David had faith that somehow he could be made right with God. We don't have to wonder how that could be. We can read Psalm 51 with a New Testament state of mind. Knowing exactly how our transgressions have been blotted out, how our iniquities have been washed thoroughly, how we have been cleansed from sin. But we can't receive this gift if we aren't initially and continually repentant. So I want to ask us, when was the last time we were broken by sin to the point where we went to God and repented? When was the last time we were broken and brought it to the Lord, asking for him to deal with it, knowing there is absolutely nothing we can do to purify ourselves? We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his love. but he still offers it because he loves us. He doesn't want to see anybody perish. So I want us to remember, as we go to God, I want us to remember the God we are coming to. Just as 1 John says, a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for David, Lord. We thank you for all the stories in the Old Testament that show us how fallen we are, how unworthy we are, how undeserving we are, 
and yet you made a way for us to be made right with you. Lord, we thank you that it isn't on our own ability, isn't dependent on what we can do, on what we can achieve. Lord, it is dependent fully on what Jesus did on that cross 2,000 years ago. So, Lord, I pray as we live our lives, we would live in, in, in light of that, constantly remembering what Jesus has done for us, constantly aware of what we have been given and why we don't deserve it. But, Lord, I pray that that would cause us to re- rejoice, not that it would make us feel guilty, but that it would help us realize the God we are serving is a God of love, a God of mercy. So, Lord, I pray as we sing right now that we would just relish that it wasn't us who accomplished it, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen. Amen. Please.